would tell them that whatever you decide is going to happen is going to happen. So if you decide that you are going to have a beautiful, successful marriage and you're going to create a legacy of love and passion, which is what I've decided, then that's what I that's what you'll create. But if you decide that all marriages end in divorce, your marriage will likely end in divorce. And it's been really fascinating to me because, you know, as I've been doing when I first did my my first foray into coaching was all about my career and burnout, all these types of things. I didn't really venture into my marital relationships. There were so many things to uncover there. Like it's still a lot of subconscious ideas, you know, that I had about divorce. And one of the things that I saw growing up is that when conflict would arise, that's when divorce would happen, as opposed to when conflict arises, you work through it, you know? And so it's interesting because I got coached a, a lot on that over the last year about how you deal with conflict. And it's obviously like, as you can imagine, it's just made me stronger. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome, bienvenidos. Make no mistake, digital marketing is a science. Advice Media has created a proven roadmap that gets you from where your practice is now to where you want it to be. They call this their pyramid of success. Thousands of clients have proven that their six-stage step approach is the optimal way for attracting new patients and retaining current ones. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to be a digital marketing expert. You have lives to change. Give them just 30 minutes to consult with you. They bet you are doing something really, really well. And there might be some areas where you can improve. That's where they come in. Just for spending the time, they will give you a $60 Amazon gift card. You have nothing to lose. Book your consult today. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. That's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. Please help me welcome our guest on today's show of Medicine, Marriage, and Money, Dr. Vanessa Calderon. Dr. Calderon is the Department Chair and Director of Emergency Medicine in San Francisco. She is the loving mother to two beautiful young children and a supportive wife of eight years. Not only is she a physician leader, she is also a professional coach, my classmate, expert at stress management, and a resiliency and wellness director for a national physician organization. Welcome, Dr. Vanessa. <laughs> well, thanks for being here. I'm so excited. Absolutely. Thank you, Kate. I love, love, love what you're doing. You're really humanizing who physicians are, you know, by talking about our relationships. It's so beautiful. Well, and you too, as well as you, with your Latina Doc podcast with Ursula, I'm loving that as well, bringing it to the Latina community, which is absolutely perfect. And tell me a little bit, okay, before, oh, before actually, before I have you tell us a little bit about you, just give us your quick, fast and dirty definition of marital interdependence. Oh, girl, let me tell you. <laughs> um, it's funny. My... So I'll tell you what my definition is now, and if we have time, I can go into how we got there. But I will say that I was never a, I never thought I was going to get married um, because a lot of what I experienced growing up, I didn't want to get married because my parents had a sort of complex relationship that ended in divorce. And I just assumed all marriages ended in divorce. And one of my biggest fears was dependence. I hated the idea of dependence. After experiencing what, what I thought dependence was growing up, I just hated the idea of having to rely on someone else for anything ever. And so I was gung-ho on being not just independent, but being highly successful, financially independent, and never having to rely on anyone ever in my life. And, you know, it served me well for a while, and <laughs> um, it's clearly not the healthiest way to approach life. So um, when I met my husband, I, um, oh, th the guy's amazing. I'll start with that. But um, 
there was a lot of conversations we had to have because I wanted to be super clear that I didn't need anything from him. Like we were going to, if we decided to get married and decided to do the work, because in my mind I had already decided marriage was going to be a lot of work. <laughs> so if we decided to get married and we were going to do the work, it was because we already loved ourselves for who we were. And all we were going to do was support the other person in continuing to grow. So for me, the idea of interdependence is the idea of loving, just loving the other person and lifting them up, helping them grow. That's it. It's not because you need anything from them. Although it's funny, I, I want to believe I don't need my husband's love, but I do want it. I desire my husband's love, not because I don't feel full or because I don't love myself, but just because it's beautiful. And when I open myself up to that type of love, I'm just able to create more love in the world. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That is like one of the most perfect definitions. Did you know that eight years ago? Girl, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> it took me six years to figure that out. Uh, so we met, so we met, geez, I think about 12 years ago we met. And heck no, I didn't know that. Again, like I know, I remember actually telling my husband, why would we ever get married? That's so silly. One of our, like my husband tends to believe that he didn't fall in love with me right away, but he did. <laughs> and I fell in love with him too. But, um, but it's just funny because I remember one of our first sort of dates and it wasn't a typical relationship at all. I was doing a dual degree. I was doing um, my MD at UCLA. And then I was doing a joint degree, a master's in public policy at Harvard at the Kennedy School. So I was going back and forth. And he was at the Kennedy School as well, doing a public policy degree. And I was finishing my third and fourth year of medical school. And so I came back to LA. I was living in Venice Beach. And he came to visit me one weekend when we were first dating. And we were at the beach hanging out. And I remember talking about marriage. I was like, wait, but why would we get married? Things are so great. Like, why would you want to get married? That doesn't make any sense. What's the point of that? And so absolutely, no, I did not know that back then. <laughs> and it took me a while to come to that definition. You know, it took me a long time. Definitely, before I said yes, I remember our vows actually reflect a lot of what I'm saying now because we had to have a lot of conversations of what it meant to become, a, it, to be in a partnership. Okay. And you guys were open about that like before you actually got married, it sounds like. So you're talking about at the beach. Uh, yeah. I mean, nothing is perfect, you know, but we at least started the conversation. There was a lot of, you know, okay, so he's an East Coaster and I'm a Californian and we were at the beach in Venice. And I remember saying to him, being totally point blank, like, okay, just so you know, and I was anchoring pretty far. I was like, just so you know, I don't think this is going to work out. And he's like, why? And I'm like, well, I'm a Californian. This is where I'm going to live. And so I don't know about you, but I don't think you want to move to California. He's like, I like, I like Venice Beach. I like the beach. I'm like, okay, cool. Remember you said that. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how were you doing two degrees at Harvard and UCLA at the same time? Um, slowly and it was a lot of work. So I did my first, um, so I didn't, I had a very circuitous route to where I am now. I did my first and second year of med school and then I took a year off and I moved to Washington DC and I did health, a grassroots organizing work and healthcare advocacy for a year. And then I went back and decided I want to pursue a master's in public policy. So I did my third year and then I did my fourth year kind of combined. I went and did a year at the Kennedy School, and then I came back and did six months of my fourth year, finished up the Kennedy School, and then came back and finished up fourth year. Oh, wow. And so everybody just, you had to get special, special permission for these things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my med school had a lot of joint degrees doing stuff, but they were usually through UCLA. So it's like joint degrees through UCLA. So I was the first one that did something outside. And they, you know, they, they came along with me. They weren't super warm to the idea. And initially, you know, I, med school, you know, uh, they invest in you to graduate. And so they want to make sure they're going to do that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. Well, okay. And then now just tell us a little bit about where you are now. Um, so I'm still married. <laughs> we live in San Francisco. Uh, well, we live right outside of San Francisco. We live in the Bay Area. Um, and yeah, you mentioned earlier in my bio, um, we have two beautiful kids. Uh, my daughter's going to be seven soon and my son is going to be four. Crazy, crazy how time flies. Um, yeah. And I, as you mentioned, also, we're both in the same um, coach certification program. I've been doing pursuing physician leadership for 
you know, my entire career. In fact, after my chief residency year of residency, I applied into a leadership and management fellowship for physicians. So I did that for a year and then I've been doing physician leadership since then. And um, a lot of things shifted. Um, I think prior to COVID for me, um, when I experienced just ton of burnout, you know, going full speed ahead, a million miles an hour and experienced tons of burnout and came back from that, totally shifted my perspective and went head first into resiliency work um, and stress management work. And actually that was my first experience with coaching. I had some transformational coaching experiences, which is what um, led me to fully understand the evidence behind it and how powerful it can be. And which is why I then pursued uh, more training into coaching to now be a coach. Um, so I did that and now I'm doing the resiliency work. I'm still doing a phys physician leadership work, but I'm heavily resiliency work now. Um, yeah, and now diving into coaching. Awesome. Well, tell us, okay, can you tell us a little bit about when you first met your hubby, what that was like? Oh, yes. It was like love at first sight, rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> so we were so we were both at the Kennedy School. And I love to tell the story because it's, the fa it's a fact. It's true, although he doesn't believe it. But I was, so the Kennedy School used to have this like forum at the bottom where people would like hang out at the bottom and you can like um, go to the top parts of it to do work. And there were these little cubbies. It says that the, one of the top little cubbies with some friends of mine, and I looked down and I saw this guy and he's so handsome. And I remember everything he was wearing that day. He had a button down shirt and jeans and he had this like side bag and I remember seeing him there and I'm like whoa that guy is very handsome I mean in my mind I was like dude that guy's hot <laughs> and I immediately had this like I had a crush on him and it was such a funny type of thing because um you know I, it's just kind of funny because, you know, we're adults. And so to have a crush on someone when you're an adult is just kind of funny. But um, I remember we ended up having the same class. And so we needed to share one of the class books. And so he was like, hey, do you want to share this book with me? And I was, and totally like, I think for him, it was very platonic. Do you want to share this book with me? And so I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, let's exchange phone numbers so we know how to give it to each other. So we exchanged phone numbers. And I remember going to my two best friends at the time and being like, I have Justin's phone number. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. So then you shared the book and when did like the... Yeah. So that was our first year. And I didn't know this, but um, my husband had just come out of a super long relationship and wasn't interested in um, being in a relationship. And so for me, it was like, whatever. I thought it was super cute. Um, but... I was usually, you know, the pursued, not the pursuer. And so uh, um, when he wasn't pursuing me, I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with that guy. <laughs> so I just like <laughs> went on with my life. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But um, but it took that entire year. So what ended up happening is towards the end of the year, um, I was I was part of um, I was the chair of this organization, the um, the Harvard Latino Caucus. And so what I we put on this huge conference, and part of the conference um, had a huge education spent on it, and my husband husband went to the Kennedy School for Education Policy Work. So while he was um, there, he came to the conference that I put on because there was this big speaker he really wanted to be with, he really wanted to learn from. And the speaker had brought um, his daughter to the conference. She was like two or three years old. And his idea was that he would sit at this panel and the daughter would sit at the, you know, at the begin at the front of the room and just color the whole time. She'd be totally cool. And so he's like sitting on this panel. We're running this huge conference. There's tons of people there. And the daughter keeps coming up to try to like talk to her dad, obviously on the panel. And I'm like, oh man, this is not going well. So the dad like, comes out to talk to her to try to tell her to calm down. And I sneak out of the room and I go to the front and talk to the dad or the guy that's on the panel. And I'm like, hey, if you want, I can hang out with your daughter for the next hour. I'll take her to get ice cream. There's this great place and we can go do whatever. And the daughter was like not interested in hanging out with me, but she had a ballet tutu on. So I was like, and guess what? I can show you some ballet moves. By the way, I do not know anything about ballet. I do not, I do not dance. But I needed to get that daughter out of the room. I did not have any kids either. I did not know how to do any of this at the time. And the dad was like, oh my gosh, you do ballet? Anyway, so the daughter finally came with me and the dad went in, had a great panel. And at the end of that, I brought the daughter back. And Justin came, my husband came up to me afterwards and was like, did you just go and hang out with so-and-so's daughter for an hour? I was like, yep. And he was like, Wow. And he says that that's when he realized that there was so much more to me that I like cared so much about these bigger things that I wanted people to have like really good experiences. And so that I went and did that. And for me, I was like, 
interesting that that was his perspective. I wanted to make sure the conference was successful, you know, and, um, but that's when he said that. And after that, it, it was on, man, he started pursuing me. He wanted to like, <laughs> he, um, and it was like very, it was very sweet. Like I remember him asking, we had like this, like, you know, grad school formal thing coming up like a dance. And he was like, are you going to the dance? I'm going to be there. Maybe we can like go together. It was just so like, it was very cute. And this was like a year after you guys met or how long after you had? Um, yeah, it was like a school year. So like nine months. Yeah. Uh, no, isn't that amazing? Like, so thank goodness you were at the same school at least for another year so that this second opportunity could happen. And so what was your, so was your husband, is his background, does he come from a Latino background as well? No, my husband is half, um, he's from New Jersey. Um, his dad's side of the family was very New Jersey Italian and his mom's side of the family is actually Canadian, but born in the United States. So um, no, not Latino at all, except for the fact that he looks totally Latino and my family always wants to pronounce his last name like he's Mexican. So <laughs> Oh my gosh. So how has that, how have the cultural differences played, played out in your marriage and what does that look like? Um, I think in all honesty, it's been beautiful. There's been a lot of like very interesting, I guess, learning experiences. I didn't know anything except from what I had seen on TV and the, the television doesn't really portray the Italian culture. You know, it's like mafia central. So, <laughs> um, but no, my, it's, I think it's been beautiful and a lot of growth. My husband is incredibly open-minded. Um, and so, and I think he was excited to be a part of a really big family. He has kind of a smaller family unit and I have a very traditional Latin family where, um, we have our core family, right? My my parents, my sisters, their kids, but um, but then we have our bigger family, grandparents. And I think he was really excited to be a part of that. There's never, as you can imagine, I'm sure there's never a dull moment when you come to a Latina or you know, Latinx like event. So <laughs> yeah, I think he was excited about that. Oh, beautiful. Okay. And now that you've been married for eight years, you know, when you told us a little bit about your views of marriage and childhood and how those have evolved and you're actually have stayed married. What else, what would you tell those people who are still determined they're ne never getting married because all marriages just end up in divorce or conflict? Um, I would tell them that whatever you decide is going to happen is going to happen. So if you decide that you are going to have a beautiful, successful marriage and you're going to create a legacy of love and passion, which is what I've decided, then that's what I that's what you'll create. But if you decide that all marriages end in divorce, your marriage will likely end in divorce. And it's been really fascinating to me because, you know, as I've been doing, when I first did my my first foray into coaching was all about my career and burnout, all these types of things. I didn't really venture into my marital relationships. There were so many things to uncover there. Like it's still a lot of subconscious ideas, you know, that I had about divorce. And one of the things that I saw growing up is that when conflict would arise, that's when divorce would happen, as opposed to when conflict arises, you work through it, you know? And so it's interesting because I got coached a, a lot on that over the last year about how you deal with conflict. And it's obviously like, as you can imagine, it's just made me stronger to really show up, be aware when my old stories of like, oh, conflict, divorce is coming up to just be like conflict, divorce. Oh, that's it. That's an interesting thought. There it is again, you know, <laughs> and let it pass. So I will just tell you that if you decide... And marriage isn't for everybody, and that's totally fine. But if you decide to get married, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Do it not because you're looking for something or looking for someone to complete you or, you know, all those old ideas of marriage of this person's going to give me status or money or um, it's gonna, this person's going to make me feel loved, which will make me feel happy. If you're doing it for all those reasons, then it's likely that, you know, it might end because nobody can create that for you. The only person that can create that for you is you. So once you 100% love yourself and create all of that sense of quote unquote security, which again is a thought, right? Then you can venture into a marital relationship with sort of a clean background, you know? Oh my gosh. I love that quote. Whatever you decide will happen, will happen. Yeah. You think your marriage is going to end in divorce, then it will. And and you, you talk about conflict here and how, how does one deal with conflict? Can you give us an example of how you deal with conflict in your marriage? How do you guys argue? Because I know that my argue has, has changed for sure. 
Oh, girl, we don't argue pretty. But um, I, I will just say, like, you know, we're a work in progress. And so, um, but I've seen our arguments evolve. And I really just love myself and give myself a lot of grace right now for the way our arguments have evolved because they were very fiery, hot, and one person has to be right, which means the other person has to be wrong in the beginning, you know? And it was like, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would not want to go back there. Um, and now where it is, it, it still gets that like that sometimes, you know, we still have egos and our egos feel like they need to protect ourselves. And sometimes the only way you know how to argue is to try to prove a point and make yourself right. And so that stuff still happens. But I have to say that now what happens and what I've experienced happening now is we'll get, and I, a lot of it is for my own stress and resiliency work, but I'll notice that I'm getting triggered and I'll have to like, take it. And, and when I'm, you know, the better person here, and it doesn't always happen, but when I'm a better version of me, I'll take it, I'll stop talking and I'll take a few deep breaths and I'll just feel my feelings. We got in an argument last week and I remember feeling like I was so upset and it could have been anger, but I felt, and I was like, actually, no, this is just sadness. Like I'm really sad right now. And so I stopped because I didn't want to come back and, you know, say the things that I thought were going to make me feel better. Cause the only thing that was going to make me feel better, obviously are me like being in tune with what I'm thinking and changing that. And so now the way we argue is it can still sometimes get fiery, but um, I think we do a good job of listening to each other or taking a huge step backwards well, you know, whenever we're super triggered and we can't process. But for me, I think um, a lot of what's created, I think where we are now is self-compassion for my marriage, because I used to believe that everybody else's marriages were perfect and that my marriage was the only one having problems. And it's just like, you know, Dr. Kristen Neff, who's like the main, I think, um, guru of self-compassion these days has put out most of the research. What she says is that's the same exact thing that happens individually. You think that everybody else is succeeding in having this great life and you're the only one suffering. And so you, you know, you become very egocentric when the suffering is about you. And so whenever I have any marital problems now, I always try to put myself in, and see the bigger picture and say, we are not the first couple that's argued about, you know, whatever extended families. We're not the first married, marriage couple that has argued about money or whatever it is, you know, and bring myself back to the bigger picture. I love that. Oh my gosh. I have to take huge step backs like every, every probably every single day or at least, at least on the weekends when we're together all the time. And remember, yes, like I, I feel like I say a lot, you just don't understand or you don't understand, right? And we all feel that way. We all will say, well, you just don't understand, but we're not the only ones suffering here. Everybody every, everybody just needs to show each other more self-compassion. Oh my gosh. Dr. Kristen Neff. Let's talk about how you invest in your marriage then. Talk about conflict. What kind of things do you guys do to create that bond, reignite that passion? Um, okay, so that's a great question. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny that you say that. I have to say, um, so again, I did this whole transformational work on my career. And what came out of that is, wow, look at, I'm succeeding so much in my career because I'd always put that first, but I had never prioritized my marriage. And so a few years ago, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm just going to prioritize my marriage the way I prioritize my career, you know? And so I put it at the forefront. You know, I have a vision board and I put the very first thing on my vision board was my marriage, which had never been before. It always been my career. And my... And when that happened, so many things shifted for me. When, when I saw, I was like, man, we, we might benefit from therapy. We weren't in a necessarily a super bad place. But I have to tell you, if you ever go to marriage counseling or therapy, you want to go when you're at an average or above place to start, you know, and create that base when you're there as opposed to it's great to go anytime. But if you're going when things are really, really tough, it's hard to come to the center. You know, it's hard to create that vulnerability. But it's easier to be vulnerable when you feel safe or loved. And so going when you're at an average place or above to start a like a therapy kind of relationship, it's a really good place to start. So um, we did that a few years ago. And then um, and it was strengthening. Anytime you have a conversation that makes either of you feel vulnerable and you work through it and the person at the end of feeling vulnerable feels loved, you become you feel so much closer, right? All the time. So we and then we started investing um on date night. So this is before COVID when we can still get people to come to our house to babysit. <laughs> so we, every Saturday we got a babysitter and we went out on a date every Saturday night. Um, and, and this is like, I'm an ER doc again. So I work, you know, anytime 
there's there's need. And so whenever I wasn't working on Saturdays, but it ended up being pretty often. In fact, I started scheduling my shifts so that I was working, I still worked weekends, but it was never the Saturday night. You know, I'd work on Friday or Sunday or whatever, but um, but I wanted that Saturday off and I prioritized that. And we also took our very first weekend away without our kids um, when we were kind of, you know, prioritizing our marriage again. I had my parents come and stay with our kids and we took our first weekend away and it was amazing. And I think um, I have to give my husband huge props for this, but he's done a lot for our marriage. He finds all these fun, like two-person board games and now during COVID, you know, that we can't go out anymore. Ah, uh, well, give us an example. What are those, what are those two-person board games? Um, so one of them is called... Um, Oh man, I'm the worst at naming these things. But it's not it's not Battleship though. That's a good two-person board game. But it's not that. <laughs> it's um gosh, what is it called? Okay, let me code names. I think it's one of them was called code names that we played. Um, so we so during COVID, for him it was really important that we still focused on her marriage. And it was and I, this actually just brings so much warmth to my heart thinking about this. But so he wanted us to still do some sort of date night, you know, because now we're like a year in and hello, like what's going on? So he asked on a Saturday, he's like, we should have a date. Let's get dressed up like if we're actually going to have a date. And so we started getting like dressed up on Saturdays. We put the kids down and we'd go downstairs and have like a fun cocktail. And we would have like conversations like if when we would go out and then we'd play games. It was super fun. Wow. Okay. So do your kids, do they go to school or do they stay home? You're in California, so they're probably virtually learning. Yeah, something? exactly. So my son is um, at a small in-person preschool. So he's been back in for a few months, but my daughter's home distance learning. Well, okay. That's beautiful. And it sounds like both of you guys, so you started early before things even had a chance to crumble, right? When you were average or above average. So that sounds like it's one of the keys. And then also you guys are both you both decided and you both committed to making your marriage number one. Well, it sounds like you did first. Yeah. He never had that problem. In his mind, he grew up in a house where his parents were married forever, you know, until his dad passed away. And so for him, of course, your, your marriage just works out. Of course, you work through things, which has been so interesting. Like my go-to in the beginning of our marriage was always like peace. Like, I guess we're getting a divorce, you know? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we work through these things. Yep. Oh my gosh. Totally know that. Yep. And so, okay. So let's talk a little bit about your career then. Okay. So we know your vision board, you put marriage number one, changed everything, but let's go back to like when you decided you needed to like seek out some, well, well everything was piling on top of you, right? And you're talking about the physician burnout. And I read a little bit about on your um, website and your blog of all the things that were happening in your life, like your mother being diagnosed with cancer and you having to like go back after having a baby right away to all these night shifts. Like, is that when you kind of shifted into learning about this resiliency? Um, well, that's when I shifted and became burned out. But you know what's interesting? And I realize this now is when I told that story, and I've told that story many times, I was always wanting to list all of the things that had happened to me because I wanted to prove that I'm so strong. And the only reason I burnt out was because of all of the stuff. But the truth is that that's BS. Yes, all of that stuff happened to me, but anybody can burn out any time. It could be the same thing repetitive over and over again, like the last year of our lives with COVID, you know? It could be anything. You don't have to have, you know, a barrage of things happening. But that's, yes, all of those things happened to me. And what I experienced at that time was burnout, not at all the other end of that. Because I also, you know, am a physician. And when I went to training, we never asked for help. We never asked for support. You know, medical school teaches you how to find answers, but it doesn't ask you how to ask, you know? And medical school teaches you how to be really strong and put up with a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't teach you how to be vulnerable. And so I remember there could have been so many times, you know, I, I can just see like, if I were to do the algorithm of me burning out and all those things happening, there could have been so many interjection points where I could have just asked for support. Like my staffing is really tough, tight at my site right now. Instead of me picking up all those night shifts, I could have asked, you know, to bring in somebody in to, to help with the night shifts or like this, the contract stuff was happening at my site. Like I could have asked for support just to, there's so many points there that I could have asked for support, but I didn't want to need the support because I didn't want to appear weak, you know? We want to be so independent. Oh, totally. And that was also, again, like, you know, I grew up thinking I never needed help from anybody. I could do everything myself. And it didn't help, you know, going to medical school and the way we were taught back in the days. I think when both you and I were there, um, it just doesn't teach you those things. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I remember I never even wanted to raise my hand in front of class because it's just, I mean, I would go up 
afterwards, after lectures, I would have usually a list of like seven to 10 questions, every single lecture to ask the teacher, but I would always wait until after the lecture because I just didn't want to be that girl with all the questions needed all the <laughs> extra support. It's so funny, right? And I remember there was this one gal in our class. This was her second career in medical school. She had been a nurse for many years. She never cared. She always raised her hand. And I remember everyone learning from all of her questions because it was the same questions everyone else had that they were too embarrassed to ask. And now it's the same thing, you know, when you we do like group coaching, for example, people are so afraid to raise their hand. And I'm like, coach me now, you know, please, like I'll volunteer. But I wasn't like that before. Oh, exactly. Yeah. When I started the whole group coaching this summer, I, I think I've listened a majority of the sessions I listened. And now I'm like, I have a hundred things to be coached on. Please let's talk through all of them. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about um, money and finances and how, how did you learn about money and finances as, as a child? Love that question because I, I think that there's two things you're going to carry with you your whole life, and that's how you deal with relationships and how you deal with money. Those two things are going to be complex and complicated depending on what you experience growing up, always. And so for me, just the way my relationship views were sort of complex because of what I experienced, money was too. Because what I had made up in my mind, I heard my parents fight about money a lot, was not having money equal divorce or not having money equal to conflict. And I had made that neural connection at a really young age and I kept getting evidence to prove that that was true. And so for me, I was dead set on having a lot of money because if money created all that conflict growing up, then if I had the money, I wouldn't have the conflict. <laughs> it's so silly now to think about it. And so I busted my butt. I busted my butt to create money. And for me, in all honesty, I used to think I never had enough, but I, it was never hard for me to make it, you know? I But I never felt like I had enough money. And I worked, worked, worked. Oh, I need to work an extra shift in emergency medicine. Oh my gosh, because your time is money, right? You can just pick up another shift if you need more money. And so I worked a lot. And I worked a lot because one, I was really driven by my career to succeed. But also, you know, I had this like, this idea in my head that I needed to create all this money so that we would never fight. And it didn't work. <laughs> Even when we had the money, we argued. But um, yeah, so we, there was just a lot of learning that came through that and a lot of letting go and a lot of stories that, um, you know, that I never had enough, really just letting go of that. And for me, a lot of that came from just being aware of how much I did have and looking around and actually my sister's um, my, I'm super, super close with my sisters. We're about a year and a half each and um, a year and a half apart. I'm sorry. And my sisters just poking holes in the fact that I would say like, we didn't grow up with a lot. They're like, what are you talking about? We all grew up in the same house. This is what I experienced. This is what I experienced. And I remember thinking, because in all honesty, looking back, the facts are that for the majority of our our, of our youth, we were about, you know, middle class-ish, you know, and there was only a small period where, you know, we were objectively, didn't have a lot, we were objectively poor. And that's, you know, it also coincided with, a, you know, being having a single mom and ha her working a lot and us moving around a lot. But, um, but for the majority of our time, we weren't like that. But I just grabbed onto that, you know, I grabbed onto that. And that's what I wanted to make my reality. And so then poking holes in that and me really opening my eyes to being like, wow, so money is neutral. Money is just a thing. Money is nothing. And I get to decide what money is. And so now for me, money is opportunity. Money is beauty. Money is growth. Money is like, you know, giving people jobs. Money is freedom. Money is time. So now I love money, but for a lot of different reasons, you know? And what about your husband's views on money? You think they're similar? Does it matter? Do you guys talk about money? Definitely. We definitely talk about money. And I talk about money with my kids so much because it's so important for me to, for them to understand what investment means and what the difference is between investing and saving, you know, and what it means to make money. In fact, my daughter had her first successful um, lemonade stand right before COVID came. And she made, I don't know, like maybe like 15 or something like, oh no, she made $24. And she was just like, so excited. She went back and said, she's like, what else can I sell? What else can I make? You know, I'm going to make jewelry. I'm going to make this. I'm going to make that. And immediately, and she's so giving. It's like the most beautiful heart to see. She made all that money, went and bought herself this beautiful necklace and then said, Luca, to my, to my, her brother, her little brother, what do you want? I can buy you that. You know, it was just the sweetest thing. And I'm like, man, cause we talk a lot about abundance in our house. We talk, you know, whenever they don't want to share, I'm like, hey, we live in a world of abundance, you know, more for you means more for them, you know, so just 
share your goldfish. There's more goldfish. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is the same thing. Yeah, I'm always like, Shona, it's okay. Like, uh, we'll get more. We'll get more. Even though I think, I think I, I have a little bit of scarcity with time still. Because I'm always like, I'm always like, she's like, why are we hurrying? In case, in case we don't have enough time. In case we're running out. I'm like, but yeah, with the things, I'm like, it's okay. We can share. We can get more. And then I have to balance that with, okay. Well, how much more can we get, right? Because like, oh, well, we don't have all the books, you know, in the in the series. Can we just buy them all today? And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> but they're available. They're available if we decide to spend our money on them. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's great. I totally agree with you. There's a scarcity of time and scarcity of money because if you really live in a world of abundance and you got to just like be clear with your own thoughts, right? Well, interesting because like when we teach it to our kids, it really causes us to like take us, you know, think about it more. Like I can't just whip out my phone and order everything on Amazon every second. Like that's what I tend to do. But then she sees all this stuff is always available. So then I have to balance that with, okay, well, what do we need? Do you have money? You know, yeah, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, she's, my kids are three and a half and, and 22 months. So, but that, yeah, lemonade stands hopefully will be in our future in a year to <laughs> no, it's interesting because life is all, you know, and it's like, I'm, I'm trying to raise my daughter to be strong and independent and know her values. And so whenever that stuff comes up, like, oh, can't we just call, Am oh, can we just order it on Amazon? Because they see us order on Amazon or go to Target. My husband, my son wanted bubbles the other day. Can we get that on Target at Target? And so <laughs> what, it, what I'm trying to teach her also is life is also about priorities and making hard and making decisions. And I don't want to say hard, but I still say it sometimes. Life is about, I say hard choices or making decisions and prioritizing. Would you rather have this or would you rather have that? You can probably have both, just not at the same time, you know, and having her think through that. But you're right. It's, it's, it's challenging for me because I'm also growing as I'm teaching. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And the other thing is when are the, when do you allow them to have like the iPad or watch a TV show? And, you know, because they could do it all the time too. But then my three and a half year old turns into a little, I give her like 30 minutes sometimes with ABC Mouse. It's like a little educational app. But then, oh my gosh, then it's like terror for the next 30 minutes because she's so devastated. I have to take it away from her. Yeah, it's totally a balance, right? And I think it depends. Like we are clearly super fortunate. Prior to COVID, we had, you know, full-time childcare. And so it was easy for us to say no screen time because they had somebody entertaining them. But parents, not all parents have that. But my husband has has been super, my husband, again, does a lot of education work. And so he's put his foot down on screen time. In fact, our kids have like 30 minutes of screen time that they get to watch at night. And we call it movie night, but it's like 30 minutes after they take, um, after dinner, before bath time. And they love their screen time. And then they, we do have tablets for them, but um, we only use them during long road trips. And it's after we've been in the car for like two or three hours, then they get their tablets. If it was up to me, I would have probably been much more lenient because I didn't have the patience. You know, I'd be like, yes, turn on your tablet. Stop talking to me. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, they, my ch children get the same thing 30 minutes after dinner before bath time of like Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or something. It's the, it's the educational app that uh, my father introduced me, ABC Mouse. And I'm just like, oh, there's pros and cons. But then if I avoid it completely, she knows what it is already. Then it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like, avoiding any a situation with like alcohol, because you can't have alcohol, and then you can't go anywhere or have, you know, it's like, but it's still there and then you'll never learn how to say no, right? So totally. My husband has also been so patient at teaching them lessons and why and really getting down to the nitty-gritty of the why. And I think this is not because my husband and I are amazing parents. I think this is more individual on my daughter and my son, but my daughter because she's the oldest. But she just listens and asks, why, why? And then if it makes sense to her, she'll just stop. She'll be like, okay, that makes sense. And then she, she'll just go with the flow whenever things make sense. It's so bizarre. And I, I don't know if my son will be the same way. You know, he's only, he's going to be four. I mean, so far he's like that. But my son's still, like my daughter won't even sneak sugar or sweets in in between things because she's like, oh no, we don't need that extra sugar right now. <laughs> and again, I think it's just who my daughter is. Yeah, we told her that, but how many kids do you tell that to? And, you know, because we told my son the same thing. And then we find my son, like he has this little secret hiding spot behind the couch where he'll take treats and go behind the couch and eat it. And yesterday he came out and spit out a piece of gum. I'm like, where'd you get that gum? He's like, I chewed the gum, but I didn't swallow because I didn't want to get in trouble. So I'm spitting it out. Does that still mean I get dessert? I'm like, dude, what? 
<laughs> gum. Yeah, hopefully you don't swallow gum anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, their mindset's so different. Their little, their thought processes, and they're all different. Well, okay. And before, okay, before I say goodbye to you, let's talk a little bit. Let me just revisit your resiliency at work. Okay. What strategies, because you are the resiliency director here and, you know, the department chair, you manage a lot of people and I'm sure a lot of issues come up. How do you, what have, what tools have you found most helpful in these um, leadership positions to help other people in their, to prevent burnout or to come back from that burnout? Wow. That's good. I think the first three things that came up for me when you asked that question are having compassion, so being a compassionate leader, having a lot of empathy, but also holding people high. And when I say holding people high is calling them out on their excuses or when things aren't working out for them, calling them out on that, but doing it with compassion and love. You know, I remember I had a burnt burnt out doc who was just working a ton and was always burnt out. And, you know, things will start reflecting when you start working that much, it'll start being reflected in your patient experience scores and the way the nurses interact with you. And I remember talking to him about this and he's like, oh, but the site is short staffed and we need all these shifts. I'm like, okay, look around. Not everybody's raising their hand to work all those shifts. So you get to decide what's right for you. And you get to decide when it starts making sense. And, you know, you can't put this on anybody else. You know, if we weren't paying you anything, would you still work the shifts? Probably not. You're probably doing it to make more money also, you know. So I think having the courage to have those discussions, but coming from compassion and love. And I think what I've built at my site is just this culture of trust and total transparency. Like I'm super honest with my site about everything when we have department meetings. And I think because of that, they know who I am. And I think I've built, you know, a culture of trust where they can just trust what I'm saying. So when I do call them out, they know I'm coming from love probably. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Cause that's good. That can be hard to do, right? To call somebody out without them getting all defensive. But if you come at it, like really genuinely you care and you're showing them kind of opening up their own mind. Yeah. And I do a lot of this. Is it possible that you work those extra shifts because blah, blah, blah? (laughs) Asking them questions. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, anything else we didn't cover here? Any take-home points you want to just emphasize when it comes to your work in, uh, in emergency medicine or resiliency, marriage, money? It's funny that you say that. I think the only thing I'd say, I guess three things. Number one is how you do one thing is how you do everything. So once you decide that you're going to be, you know, have a successful marriage and define what that means, you know, for me, successful marriage to me means leaving a legacy of love and passion for generations to see, you know, and healing that sort of intergenerational trauma. So once you decide that, then you can use those same tools on anything. So again, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And the second thing is the one thing about resiliency that people hate to talk about is the compassion part, the self-compassion, because they think it's soft and flowery and it's not going to work. But when I, I'm a compassion fatigue educator and therapist, and when I was doing my therapy training, there we spent eight hours, an entire day, just on building a self-compassion plan. So what I will say is self-compassion matters. And my, my bet is that the times that you are less patient with your spouse are probably the times that you're super burnt out, stressed, or exhausted. You haven't been sleeping. You haven't been taking care of yourself. You haven't exercised or worked out. There's a lot going on at work that you just keep saying yes to as opposed to being like, oh, not right now, or what is that going to take priority over, or really prioritizing your time. So just really think about how, when you are your best, how do you show up? And when you are stressed out, how do you show up? And then when you think about that, who do you want to be, you know, and how do you get to make choices to be the best version of you? Oh my gosh, self, eight hour self-compassion plan. I need to build that. I didn't even realize you were a, what did you, what did you say you were a therapist? Uh, yeah. So I did a compassion fatigue education training and then a compassion fatigue therapy training. So, and I did it with the Green Cross of Traumatology. So essentially what they do is they get people that are trained in this and send them to super high stress situations. So any hospital during COVID would have been one, but also for example, um, uh, New Orleans during the floods a long time ago when you know and things like that when things like that happen so because there's going to be um, first responders that come out and there's and even just humans be experiencing it as the victim of the trauma you know and you need to know how to lead those people that's beautiful well thank you so much for coming on my show Dr. Calderon so beautiful absolutely Kate again I'm so happy you're doing this I think we forget that doctors are people and that we're just humans <laughs> and oh, you know everybody. 
we're, yeah, everybody thinks we're like perfect and have all the answers. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people think we have all the answers for all the medical things. <laughs> I totally agree. Well, this was so fun. Thank you so much. One last thing before we go. Remember Advice Media? Don't forget to schedule a consult with them to receive a $60 gift card and strategic insight on what your current digital marketing is doing or not doing for you. Contact Advice Media at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. Vanessa Calderon. So happy she came to talk to us. I have so many take-home points from her. Number one, whatever you decide is going to happen will happen in your marriage, in your relationships, in your life. If you decide that all marriages will end in conflict or divorce, plan for a divorce from the beginning. If you decide when conflict arises that that's something you're going to work through, well, then Plan for a lifelong marriage that will have its ups and downs, its hardships and wonderful times. And also remember to do it for the right reasons, right? Stay in it for the right reasons. So I'm not telling you to stay in an abusive relationship or Dr. Calderon is not. Do it for the right reasons, she says. Not for somebody to complete you, not to feel loved or appreciated or for the money or the status. Do it because your relationship, the two of you together are stronger than either of you apart and decide what's going to happen. Decide now. Number two, look at the bigger picture during conflicts. Take a moment to just step backwards and look at what you're talking about, what you're arguing about. Remember, you're not the only one probably arguing about this subject. There's probably been millions of people before you arguing about this for the past hundreds of thousands of years. And remember, in this conflict, you're not the only one suffering. There's somebody else, your partner, your spouse, whoever is in this relationship with you. They are also likely not happy to be in this argument or this conflict with you. So look at the bigger picture. Put yourself in their shoes, which can be hard in the moment. So maybe you need to step away. This happens during all conflicts. Number three, teaching resilience, setting an example of resiliency at work and at home. Dr. Calderon tells us that, first of all, you need to be a compassionate leader if you're going to encourage resilience, compassion, not often something we talk about when we're talking about how to be a strong, good leader that people want to follow. Compassion. And then next, you need to call people out with compassion. So if you're going to correct somebody or give somebody advice or tell somebody they're not doing their job correctly, they're not performing the daily tasks the way they need to be to be practicing standard of care, you need to do it with love and compassion. Come from that place of love instead of from that place of anger or frustration and still have the difficult conversation. You can still tell people ways they can improve constructive criticism, but it needs to come from a place of love if you're going to be a resilient, compassionate leader. And then third, last, she tells us about trust and transparency and how that is so important in resiliency because in order for people to be able to continue working or continue living in your home in a happy environment, in an environment, in a cohesive collaborative environment. There needs to be trust and there needs to be transparency. They need to be able to come to you with any question or any topic. Anything should be allowed. So set your ego aside, take no offense, maybe step back, maybe don't react or respond immediately and just listen, but offer that trust and transparency. And a couple, a couple other just quick phrases that Vanessa said that I loved was, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And want to be loved is different than need to be loved. Oh my gosh. Wanting the love from your spouse is so different than needing it. When you need it, when you crave it, then you often don't find it because what you actually need is to love yourself first, right? You need to love yourself first and then you can want it 
from your spouse, regardless if it happens or not in the heat of the moment or in day-to-day practice is different because it might not always be a constant 100% thing to feel loved, right? Because that's something you're in control of, not them. And that is that is it for the take-home points from Dr. Calderon, my friends. If you're listening to this, happy Monday. This is likely a few days after I've given birth to my third child. So I will still be here for you guys. I will still be making podcasts every Monday for the next 12 weeks that I am off from my radiology job. Definitely feel free to reach out to me on the Facebook, (laughs) the gram. I will still be there. And I hope you walk away asking yourself, how can I lead with more compassion, more self-compassion? How do I feel about conflict in my relationship or relationships? Can I tell the difference between anger and sadness when I am in an argument? And if so, how and what does that mean? How can I prevent physician burnout, both for myself and for those around me? And lastly, do I trade time for money? When I go to work, do I take, pick up extra sifts because that's how I think I can make more money is just by trading more time for money. And what is that doing to my life? And that is it. If you want more about financial tips and advice, definitely check out my husband's Facebook community, 39.6 community. And that is open to anybody who wants to become more financially savvy about anything, homes, cars, rentals, Airbnbs, student debt, real estate, investing, everything. Okay. And if you want a place to talk about relationships and marriage and daily inspiration and a place to just come and paint relationships in a positive light, come over to my Facebook group, Medicine, Marriage, and Money. If you are a physician, you are welcome to join and just reach out to me. I love a five-star review. I'd love it actually even more if you just shared this episode with somebody who needs to hear what Dr. Vanessa Calderon has to say. And much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.